A True North exclusive revealed that performers at a Drag Queen Story Hour for Children at Pride Winnipeg celebrations posted extreme and satanic-themed content on their social media profiles. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino says his office cannot overrule the Correctional Service of Canada's decision to transfer serial killer Paul Bernardo to a medium-security prison. Elections Alberta insists a delay in results on election night was not caused by technical issues related to the tabulators. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, June 6th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Lindsay Shepard. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. A drag queen story hour for children at Pride Winnipeg celebrations on Sunday featured a performance group whose members have posted extreme and satanic themed content on their social media profiles. The House of Hex is a Brandon, Manitoba-based drag queen group. According to the Pride Winnipeg website, the group held a 2 p.m. drag queen story hour on Sunday on the kids stage for its 2023 program. The group is composed of four performers. Flora Hex, Luna Hex, Mercy Hex, and Lilith Hex. Instagram profiles by the group's so-called mother, Flora Hex, and the official House of Hex account post a variety of horror and satanic-themed content not suitable for children. Some of the photographs feature bondage gear, horns, and frightening makeup. Last year, CBC News profiled the group claiming that it spread a, quote, message of expressing kindness, creativity, and inclusivity. Lindsay, you've written a little bit about this in the past, specifically about how when you look up drag queen performers online, you can't really find any who don't have very explicit content on their social media profiles and choose to brand themselves in these really vulgar ways. So were you surprised to see the story today? I was not surprised, but this does bring it to a new level just with the, you know, the very explicit bondage gear, the horns, the scary masks. Um, I think the message just needs to get out to mainstream culture, mainstream audiences that pride is not what you think it might be. And pride is particularly not for children. I mean, I remember going to a pride parade in I think 2016 it was in Vancouver, just because I, you know, my position is uh, gay people should not be persecuted by their society. So I went as an ally. And what I saw was kind of almost the similar thing, even though it was so many years ago, it was, you know, these these men with whips and other, you know, things like chains parading around in the streets, I mean, in a literal parade, uh, in their weird, degenerate masks and outfits, um, some of them naked also. And yes, there were children in the audience, even back then. And I have never returned to one of those parades. And uh, we really need to hammer the message that Pride is not for kids, and it's not what you think it may have been. Uh, It's now just too degenerate. So I think you raise a really interesting point there that pride is not for kids, and it actually never has been for kids. Now that we are in Pride Month, we're all starting to see the images online of these parades, and there's just a lot of nudity in them and a lot of sexuality and certainly things that some adults would be offended to see, but most adults could see it. And if they weren't interested in it, they could turn away. But you're absolutely right. It really does not seem like the place for kids. 
We know that in Florida, when Governor Ron DeSantis said, we're not going to do Pride for Kids anymore, they just decided to cancel their Pride events and their parades there. What do you make of this? Here you are saying, you know, Pride is not for kids, but we've seen in some jurisdictions that when that's actually being enforced, these parades and the people who are organizing them choose not to go forward with it. They really want to target children. And, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial or anything, but, you know, you we have to kind of leave the kids alone. And there's this saying, um, I think it's from The Simpsons, like, uh, won't somebody think of the children? It's from some sort of cartoon. And um, people use it to mock you know, like mothers or other people who are concerned about what children are viewing. Um, and it's like, ha, you know, kids can handle themselves. Like, you don't need to clutch your pearls about what the kids are seeing. Um, but, you know, when people mock us for being concerned, um, it actually kind of shuts down the discussion uh, in that nature. Last week, Canadians were shocked to learn that serial killer and rapist Paul Bernardo was transferred to a medium security prison. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino insists that there's nothing his office can do about it. Speaking to reporters on Monday, Mendicino says he spoke with Correctional Service of Canada Commissioner Ann Kelly, and while he was shocked by the decision, his office cannot overrule it. He says CSC decisions on transfers are independent of his office. Mendicino said Kelly promised to review the decision and report back to him in short order. Last week, news reports emerged that Bernardo was transferred from the maximum security Millhaven Institution in Kingston, Ontario, to a medium security prison in La Macaza, Quebec. Bernardo was convicted of first-degree murder in 1995 for the killings of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. He was also convicted of manslaughter for his role in the death of 15-year-old Tammy Homolka. He is serving an indeterminate sentence. In a statement, the CSC did not explain why the decision was made, but stressed that Bernardo is still under tight control. Rachel, do you think there's any circumstance in which it is appropriate to put this evil man in a medium security prison? No, I don't. Paul Bernardo is widely regarded as one of the worst, if not the worst, serial killer and rapist within Canada. I mean, his actions, 1995, that was before I was even born. And still, I'm very aware of the infamy that he is. Kristen French grew up in St. Catharines. That's also where I grew up. I remember as a kid and being a bit older walking and there was a bench in one of our public parks that was dedicated to her. And it's one of those things, you know, so often as a kid, you're walking and you might see a memorial dedicated to someone in some local town hero that you have no idea who they are, but everyone knew who Kristen French was just because this was such an obscene story that really gripped the nation and has been passed on to younger generations sort of as a warning story of what can happen and to be careful and wary of strangers, things like that. So there's no circumstance in which this is appropriate. I think it's interesting that Marco Mendicino says he can't do anything. I don't know why we're in a situation where our federal prison rules and just our prison rules and our criminal system is so lax to begin with. I would think that the federal government would be able to set some sort of precedent to ensure that these sick offenders are behind a maximum security prison for the rest of their life. And at the same time, when Marco Mendicino says that he's upset by this decision, he said he was shocked by this decision, kind of makes you scratch your head because I feel like we're letting off violent criminals all the time, people who have committed murder 
are out on bails within a couple days. So this really does seem in line with what I have come to expect from Justin Trudeau's government. Then, of course, when it comes to this particular story, they're well aware of the damage that it holds across the nation. As I just mentioned, this happened two years before I was born, and I'm very aware of who this man is and his killings. So obviously, the federal government is aware of the optics of this, and for some reason, they've decided to come down hard on this story, this man, but let so many others off. I was reading that Bernardo spent 23 hours a day um, locked up in a cell by himself while he was in that maximum security prison. And, you know, that sounds about right. Uh, he doesn't deserve anything more than that. And apparently there is some sort of open campus model at the medium security institution that he's being transferred to, which he does not deserve and will never deserve. And we do know it, it, it came to light about six years ago that his partner in crime, who uh, lured the victims and participated in the torture and rape of the victims and the killings and of her own sister. So that's Carla Homolka. Um, they were married. She is apparently, you know, at least six years ago, she was living in Quebec. She has three kids. She's married. And she was volunteering at her kids' Christian school. Um, so yes, this person who lured teenagers, participated in their sexual assault and killing and torture, was working with children. Uh, and with the way that the government is going, like you were saying about Marco Mendicino, I wouldn't put it past them to let Bernardo out maybe at some point or something. So we need to make sure that that never happens. No, exactly. That's just it. I think that's why people were so outraged over the story because in the back of their minds, they're thinking, is this where we're headed now? Is the government going to let him out onto bail? Is this something that we're going to have to worry about and be wary of which community is he living in? Is he anywhere near my kids? when we already know there is so many violent offenders who are back out on the streets very quickly after committing a violent crime. And this instance with his partner and his former wife, I believe, Carla Hamoka, that was so disturbing when that story came out. She obviously was one of the many Canadians who committed heinous acts and then was given a slap on the wrist. And when you mentioned Paul Bernardo, what you were reading about him spending 23 hours a day confined in his cell, Canadians have by and large decided that they are not in favor of the death penalty, but it does make you scratch your head and say, is it, you know, at least a discussion worth having? It is a discussion worth having, but uh, probably we don't have the time for it on this podcast. <laughs> Elections Alberta says a delay in results on election night was not caused by technical issues related to the tabulators, but rather the time it took to enter results manually. The election administrator used tabulators to calculate the advance vote because, for the first time this year, voters were able to vote in any advance poll in any riding across the province as part of the Vote Anywhere initiative. Elections Alberta said returning offices were responsible for reporting the results of the Vote Anywhere counts, which is a time-consuming process. An Elections Alberta spokesperson told True North, quote, Every location provides results for all 349 candidates. Before these counts are reported, they are generated from the tabulators, transcribed onto statement of votes, and then input into our result site. Elections Alberta also said results from other jurisdictions may be reported quicker when using tabulators due to the electronic submission of results. Elections Alberta will announce the official election results at 10 a.m. on Thursday after conducting a thorough audit of all ridings. Those results will include recounts in Calgary, Acadia, and Calgary-Glenmore, which were decided by less than 100 votes. 
If either party is not satisfied with elections Alberta's ruling this week, it can proceed with a judicial recount in which it will argue the specifics of each ballot before a judge. That process would take about another month. So, Lindsay, I'm getting kind of some mixed results from people that I've spoken to about whether they like the tabulator. I think the advanced vote anywhere initiative was very useful. I certainly was not in my home riding at the time, and it was convenient just to be able to go to any office and cast my ballot in the advanced polls. I didn't want to wait till election day because obviously I knew I was going to be busy working. But then on the back end of things, the tabulators actually did take more time to produce results. And I know some people would just prefer if they weren't used. There's still a lot of people, you know, especially conservatives who are uncomfortable with the thought of tabulators being used in the election and would like them entirely removed for next year's provincial vote. Do you think that it would be better just to stick to a hand counting of the ballots or do you think there's actually some credence that it gives people more flexibility with the advance vote to use the tabulators? Yeah, like you're saying, the the Vote Anywhere initiative um, is really useful for people who you know work around the province. And if the tabulators are necessary in making that happen, maybe they can you know learn from the delays that happen and and learn how to expedite the process. But you know we did see from these these two recounts that you mentioned in Calgary Acadia and Calgary Glenmore that the decisions were made you know in Calgary Glenmore by a matter of 30 votes the NDP won and then in Calgary Acadia that was um, an NDP win with 25 votes so you know it really does make you realize every vote matters That's it for today, and don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.